Everybody hear me? There I am. So we, uh, we've been walking through this book of Ephesians, and uh, the first half of the book, as we've said a couple times now, was kind of the, the theory, the gospel, the doctrine part of Paul's discussion about Ephesians. And we learned that it's all about this new identity that we have in Christ and how he makes us alive and new when we were dead, right? We have this stark kind of death versus life contrast throughout. And then there's the implication of that is that we are all united, but united in Christ, right? There's all kinds of things in the world that we talk about unity, but what we don't ever really get to is unity about what? Is it just unity for unity's sake, right? You'll see that in some churches that it's so about unity for its own sake that we really don't even know what we're united around anymore. No, it's unity around Christ himself, right? And we as a people are transformed into the newness of creation. And so in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he digs into that. And then last week, we started to look at chapter 4 when we moved to the practical piece. And in and, and 4, it kind of focuses on two things, right? The, the way that Christians generally behave amongst themselves and and a little bit in the world around them, but then also the church and how we within ourselves are supposed to behave and conduct ourselves. How do we live out this newness as a body of believers amongst ourselves and with one another and towards one another? And so that was the focus of last week. Today, starting in chapter 5, Paul moves from these broader spheres of all of us, the church, into the home. And, and generally, when we deal with scriptures that start to prescribe to us how things are supposed to work in the home, we, we get into the preaching versus meddling debates of things. Because it's one thing for me to tell you how you're supposed to act as Christians out in the world. It's another thing for me to tell you how you're supposed to act as Christians here. Right? You kind of think, well, he's the pastor. This is the church that he pastors, I guess. I guess we got to listen. But now we're moving to telling you how you should conduct yourself in your own houses. And there's a tendency that we kind of have to say, Mm-mm. my house, my rules, right? my way or the highway. This morning specifically, we're going to look at how Paul understands this newness of the gospel to apply to our marriages. For those of us who are married or for those of you who are divorced or widowed who were married, or for those of you who are not yet married who might someday be married, you might sit here and think, I'm never getting married again. You don't know that, right? How many of you thought you were done having children and then, huh, nope, right? You can make your plans all you want. The Lord is the one who determines your, your steps. And so no matter where you are in life in terms of married, divorced, widowed, not yet married, dating, engaged, whatever, whatever your context, this, this applies uniquely to all of us in some way. So you don't get to tune out if you're like, well, I was married and my spouse passed and I'm divorced now, so I don't have to listen to this anymore, or I'm divorced or widowed or whatever, right? This, this applies to every one of you, so, so tune in. And, and here's the interesting thing. So whenever I'm at weddings... One of the things I really love to see at weddings, and you see it about half the time, is that they do the, the anniversary dance. Raise your hand if you know what that's all about, if you've ever been part of an anniversary dance, right? Here's what they do. They have all the couples come out on the floor, and then eventually they're like, if you've been married for less than three hours, you know, and then the bride and groom have to leave, and everybody, you know, claps their, their three-minute-long marriage, and they sit down, and then it's, if you've been married for less than five years and ten years. And so actually, this morning, I, I kind of want to do that. So if you would do me a favor, 
And before we start, I want, I want you to understand this. If you are widowed, the length of your marriage before you were widowed counts. So you don't just sit, right? Like if you were married for 40 years and your spouse has passed on 10 years ago, like you're, you're in the 40 bracket. You get to be in there. You've done the work, believe me, right? So here's what I want to do. If you have been married for more than a year, please stand right now. If you've been married for more than one year, please stand. If you've been married less than 10 years, please sit down. Some of you guys just were like up, down, it's feeling Catholic. If you've been married less than 20 years, please sit down. Less than 30 years, please sit down. 40 years. 50 years. 60 years. All right, let's go 55. Everybody sat down. 55? 56? 57. We need a winner. 58. 57. We got our winners right up front here. Uh, and then... <laughs> John and Sherry, we won't put you on the spot like they do at weddings where they ask you all kinds of advice and everything, because number one, I think we'd be here for a while, right? So you, you'd have a seat. Congratulations. It, it's an it's a interesting thing for me, right, as a, as a young pastor and a, a fairly, I'm not, I'm not a newlywed, but I'm newly-ish wed, you know, and so I, I look at the idea of that length of time and I realize, like, they've been married longer than I've existed on the face of this earth. That's crazy to me, right? And it's a beautiful picture to paint. And here's why it's such a beautiful picture, because that type of number that we see is, is starting to decrease more and more. That's something I've noticed over the years when you, when you attend weddings. I feel like the length of marriages seems to be less and less, right? The last couple standings, kind of time of marriage, seems to be less and less each time we go to one of these things. And we see that in the world in which we are, the longevity, the commitment of marriage is something that's starting to fall by the wayside. Right? The divorce at this point in the country is about a little over half. Um, if you look at first glance, in the Christian world, it's not really much better. Uh, there's some newer research that's been done that's pretty great that kind of looks at not just people who say they're Christian, but like people who are committed Christians. So like somebody who doesn't just say, I, I follow Jesus, but I'm invested in the life of my church. I'm there every week. I, uh, the Bible is the infallible word of God. Like some of these factors, if we have people that answer those questions affirmative, we start to see that go closer to like, you know, like 25-ish percent of a divorce rate. So more people that are committed to Christ are staying married than you would initially think. But it's still a pretty terrible rate overall. Either way, I think we can see that marriage is certainly not what it ought to be in the world today, right? Relationships and the way that we think about them culturally today are a mess. So we can't even, at this point, agree necessarily about what men or women even are, let alone how they romantically ought to relate together. And so you have, you have dating, and that's kind of even antiquated today. You have hookups, and I, I can tell you, if you're a person in the room under the age of 20, even the phrase hookups probably makes me sound like an old guy, right? Like I'm outdated. I don't really know what I'm talking about. And I'll let you in on a secret. I really don't know what I'm talking about. 
Like the world today and, and the way that we think about how relationships work and how they're approached and how we function with one another and what romance is or isn't and all these types of things is becoming increasingly more and more convoluted or confusing. One of my most frustrating parts about serving so many years in youth ministry is when kids would talk about dating or somebody they liked, and I'm like, well, did you tell them about it? And they're like, well, no, I could never tell them that I liked them. I'm like, why the heck not? Like, that's how I operated as a kid, right? If I was in high school and I liked a girl, I would tell the girl I liked the girl. Like, how is that? Well, no, no, what if the, what if the rejection? Okay, right? We think about these things in such a weird way in the world in which we live. We spend a year planning a wedding, but virtually no time planning a marriage. Every time I sit with a couple in, in counseling and marriage counseling or premarital counseling, it's baffling. Like the, the, they have thought about every detail of the color of what they're going to have on a table that day, but they haven't thought about how they're going to share their finances the next morning when they wake up together and have to figure out who's going to pay the rent and how that's going to work. Or what they want to do when it comes to children, or how to raise them, or what their values are in those things. We haven't thought about things. Relationships are 100% today more and more convoluted than ever. And marriage itself is something that's really not that valued anymore. It's on the decline. Most people think that marriage is just something antiquated that we don't even really need. We can just be together. It's this idea that we don't really want the formal commitment because it's just a piece of paper anyway. I don't need that paper to show that I love you. Right? Those are the kind of words we hear today. If we look past all of the surface issues of marriage, one of the things we find is an overarching theme of self-centeredness. Relationships today are more about me, the personal fulfillment and happiness, than they are about the us or the you. And the decisions people make about relationships, about how to get in them, how to get out of them, are all about preserving the me and my needs and wants and desires, rather than this selfless investing in another human being. They're less about serving and loving and more about gratifying the self. Now, I want to address the elephant in the room, because today we're going to talk about Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5 has the famous word as we start the passage that no one wants to hear. It's the best way ever, other than talking about money, to make a whole sanctuary cringe all at once. Submit. Right? Submit. We throw that word out there, and right now you've got wives grabbing their husband's hands and squeezing. Some of them are squeezing like, listen up, here we go. Right? I've been waiting for, I've been waiting for, let's talk about this for a long, long time. I'm getting, I'm writing, taking my notes. I'm going to write all this down. And on the way home in the car, we're going to have a talk about all the things, right? Some of you are squeezing hands of like, oh, not again. Man, I'm tired about hearing about this passage. But here, here's what I want to, want to challenge you to do this morning when we read this. I want to, number one, approach the whole thing with a fresh mind and a clean slate, right? Let this text kind of speak to you anew without these misconceptions about what it does or doesn't mean to submit or whatever that word makes you feel when you hear it, right? Kind of let, let your guard down. If you want to bring it back up after you can, but just let it down for the sake of this time, right? And, and hear things with fresh eyes. And number two, remember the previous comments about the state of relationships today, right? You may or may not agree with what we look at in scripture about submission and marriage today, but, but we all maybe at least could agree that relationships and how they're approached and thought of today 
are not the way that things should be going. Something's not right. right? There's got to be something better out there than what we have concocted in our heads and the world and the way in which it's going. There's got to be something better than that. And I would submit to you today that Scripture in Ephesians 5 teaches us a better way forward. And you can choose to agree or disagree with that, but it's what God says, and he has a reason to say the things he says. Right? And so this morning I want to start uh, kind of in an unconventional way. I want to look at the second half of Ephesians 5 first and dissect that a little bit, and then I want to go back and look at the first half of Ephesians 1 through 21, and so we can put the marriage stuff into its bigger context, and that'll help us kind of discern what the thrust of Paul's argument is, right? And so this morning, could we stand together and read through the second half of chapter 5? Um, it is Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 33 this morning. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of one of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. So first, there are some things this passage obviously means and is trying to get at. But more importantly, to start, there are some things this passage does not mean. And so before we get to the, the controversially parts, let's talk about some things that this, this passage in no way means that the church over the years has said it means wrongly in many ways. Right? This, this verse has been the cause of so much misconception and really abuse. This, this verse has been used by, by men and by churches and by, by leaderships and all over the time, by husbands to wives, to, to create things that aren't real, to demand things that aren't things that God demands. And so I want to kind of pick this apart. And so here's, here's a couple things. Number one, this call to submission here is only talking about marriage. There's, there's nothing in this passage, right, on the whole, if we look at Ephesians 5, there's nothing about women submitting to men, right? There's nothing that suggests if you're a woman sitting in this church, in this passage of you submitting to any other men in this church, not in there, right? So it's not about women and men at all. It's specific to wives and husbands. It's actually even more specific to wives submit to your own husband. So you don't submit to anyone else's husband. Right? So if you have friends in the husband's church, no. They don't get to tell you anything. Right? 
Unless maybe they're an elder of the church by happenstance and there's some other, we can get into some other passages. But in this passage on his face, wives submit to your own husbands. It's not about men, women at all, right? And so this passage is, is not in any way referring to uh, relationships of how women should relate to elders in their church. There's other passages that talk about those things, but it's not talking about that. It's not talking about um, the idea of like in the workplace, right? Bosses. It's not getting into that at all, right? So whether you are a woman who has a man boss or a man who has a woman boss or however those things, it, it isn't even dealing with those types of relationships whatsoever. So we're only talking about wives and their own husbands here. That's number one. Number two, this passage is not demanding a blanket obedience to the husband's authority. Right? To take the joke that often floats out there, this passage does not mean or say or suggest in any way that you have to make him a sandwich when he asks you to. Hear me clearly on that. That's kind of funny, but kind of not, right? Like, what he's not saying is, wives, do everything your husband tells you to all the time without question. Right? That's not what it's saying. Right? That's not what submit means. Number three, this passage assumes that God ranks higher than your husband. A.K.A., you submit to God first, husband second. Right? So if your husband is leading you in a way that goes counter to what God's call on your life is or what his demands of you are, you don't submit to your husband in that scenario. God is first, husband after that. Very clear. Number four, it doesn't mean that the wife is not in charge of things within the household and within your marriage and how you function, right? This passage doesn't make the husband the dictator or the CEO of things. It also doesn't say that he has to be in charge of every facet of the relationship, right? In any way whatsoever. In our, in our house, um, I, I happen to do the finances. The only reason I handle the finances is because that's one of the parts of my, my wife's kind of role on a professional level, and so it's like, she doesn't want to come home and do what she has to do for work at home, too. And so I kind of take that on, and I'm a very OCD person. But actually, in reality, my wife's probably way more gifted with finances than I am, right? Or things like administration and those kinds of things. Uh, my, my wife has some very specific ways in which we split the administration in her house very well because there's some stuff that she's just better at than me, right? She just is. She's more qualified. My wife runs a, a, a nonprofit. She's the executive director of a nonprofit organization. And so half the time when it comes to things of administrative nature or anything related to that kind of stuff or when we're thinking about policies in our church, I actually am consulting her rather than her somehow consulting my God-given authority in any way like that. And so I defer to her so often because there's so many facets of life and how it works that she is so much more epically qualified to speak to than me that it behooves me and is very smart for me to just say, hey, what, do you, what would you do here? What would you think? There are policies in this church when it comes to things like HR and, and stuff that are born out of her brain when I've said, hey, how does this work? I don't even know. Right? And so that's something to understand. We, we, we have to get behind this idea that being the head of a household doesn't mean being in charge of all things. Here's something uh, really, really important to, to see in this. The passage calls wives to submit to husbands. It gets into no detail about how that looks within your house. It doesn't meddle with it. 
Why not? Because it doesn't care. How that looks in your home is up to you two to decide together. Who is going to run what? Who is going to be in charge of what? Who is going to be the primary this? Those are all things that you together function and sort out. And so this idea that somehow wives submit to your husbands mean that you're supposed to be this meek housewife that just belongs in the kitchen is antiquated and outdated and in no way biblical. Right? Practically speaking, this submissive type of authority scenario, if you walked into the average household, you wouldn't see this authoritative, dictatorial kind of way of a house operating. It certainly isn't how it looks in my house. Right? My wife's in charge of a whole bunch of things in our house. Where I go, yeah, you go. Way better than I am. Right? There are things in our house that if my wife wasn't in charge of them, they would crumble. My children probably wouldn't live very long if it was just me. <laughs> right? And that's not just in like a rearing sense. That's in an organizational sense. That's in a, oh, yeah, that doctor's appointment is today. That's like There's all these things that you have to figure out together. And so submission is this blanket kind of overarching theme of how things work. But in the day-to-day, that doesn't have to be that the man is in authority over all issues that come up and the wife just is constantly asking for permission. Right? That doesn't mean that the wife should ask for permission every time she wants to swipe the credit card. No. That's not how it works. Number five, and this is really important, the call to submission in no way relates whatsoever to the status of men and women or the equality between men and women, right? Equal in status, separate in role, right? In the same way in an organization, you might have a COO and a CFO. One handles finances and is in charge of those things. One handles operations. They're not necessarily unequal in terms of authority. The CEO, God, is above both of them, but they have the roles that they serve. They don't do the same thing. You have different functions. And so when we talk about the wife submitting, that's not because in any way Scripture suggests that men are better, more important, more powerful, more intelligent, more capable than, than, than women are to lead. None of that applies. I actually can tell you, I'm not sure why God has said men are supposed to serve as the head of the household. I, I, I don't know why. Because I could tell you, uh, of all the men and women I know, there's probably as many marriages where the woman is far more qualified to serve that role than the man is qualified to serve that role. But for some reason, God has put it this way, right? And so it has nothing to do with status. To, to say wives submit to husbands does not mean husbands are more important. It does not mean husbands are better. It does not mean husbands are more powerful. And so if it doesn't mean any of those things, then what does it mean? It means that the husband is ordained as the head of the house, he bears the responsibility to lead his wife and family towards Christian maturity and wholeness, as God calls him to. Right? The ultimate final kind of authority over what happens, what direction the family goes, how things work, it lies with the husband as the head of the house, but it's a collaborative approach, number one. We do not know exactly why God has made it this way. It's not because men are better. It means that the wife consciously and willingly allows the husband to lead the family, that there's an authority she has and an autonomy she has, and to a certain degree, she willingly lays some of that down. 
It's the wife of her own free accord, willingly relinquishing a certain amount of control and leadership for the sake of the husband's call to lead and exert that authority. Right? At this point, it's, it's really helpful to look at Jesus' own example. Because right? if we look through Scripture, there's all these places where Jesus submits to the Father. And one of the things we see is that the Father, the Son, the Spirit are one being, multiple kind of ways of manifesting that being. They're separate, but, but one. And, and, and in no way do we ever see in Scripture the suggestion that Jesus is beneath the Father in terms of the power structure. Right? It's not an org chart with like COO and then VP is Jesus. They're equal. But yet somehow the, 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 the Christ goes and submits to the Father's will, right? He goes and he prays in the garden, and I want to see this happen, but not my will, but your will be done. And so it's this weird, that we don't understand, this weird circle of submission among equals that in our culture of wanting to have authority and autonomy over everything doesn't really even make sense. But Jesus is able to submit without sacrificing any of his power and authority and status. Wives, it's the same for you. Right? That's really important to understand. He voluntarily lays down his authority to the Father at times to do his will. Right? Next, we need to look at the call of husbands in this passage. Because guess what? Wives, you get three verses. You get a word that you don't like. Husbands get nine verses. And here's how it starts. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sacrifice. Right? Let each one love his wife as himself. So here's a couple things that this passage suggests that husbands have to do. Number one. I lost my train of thought. Number one. Okay. The husband is to number one. Love his wife like Jesus loved the church. I don't know about you, but if you're trying to think about how much does Jesus love his church, right? More than himself. He is then called to give himself up for her, right? To, if necessary, lay his entire life down for the sake of his wife. That's a thing I really don't want to do, right? But we're called to. I like my life, right? Love their wives as his own body, completely and entirely we're called as husbands to selflessness so that in every decision you make as a husband, you are supposed to go, okay, if I have the choice between my wife flourishing or me flourishing, I'm going to pick her every time. If I have the choice of spending on myself or on her, I'm going to pick her. If I have the choice of, of in this day making decisions that care more for her or myself, I'm going to make the ones that care more for her. If I have the opportunity to build her or myself up, I'm going to build her up. If I, in a conversation, have the opportunity to, to, to brag about myself or her, I'm going to brag about her. If I have the ability to, you know, there's a bus coming and it's her or I, guess what? She lives, I die. Right? Scripture calls the husbands to place their wives first in every possible way. Your job is literally to treat your wife as if she's yourself. Whatever your instinctive nature of self-preservation is, you're supposed to apply that to your wife. And here's the thing. Wives, if your husband did this perfectly, how hard do you think submission becomes? 
Like, if every decision your husband, if your husband comes in and he goes, I've made a decision. You've worked too hard. You're going to go and you're going to have a day at the spa. Are you going to be like, don't tell me what to do? <laughs> no! Right? Now, that's silly, but, but in real life, that's how it works itself out. The husband's role is to, in every way, serve and make sure the wife is lifted up and upheld and, and presented as Christ presents the church without blemish, and that her holiness is the thing that he most has at his heart and soul that he wants to accomplish, that everything about the husband's duty when he wakes up in the morning becomes, how can I bring my wife closer to Jesus today than she was yesterday? And if every husband did that, there'd be no wife on earth that'd have a problem submitting anything he desires or says or calls the family to do. That's how it's supposed to work, right? It's not, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, do whatever you want and just expect her to listen, right? There's a reason that they're both in here. And I don't know why the wives are first. I don't know that Paul, Paul has a reason for everything, so I'm sure someday we can ask him. But we might as well flip these and put the husband first and then the wife. For whatever reason, that's not how Paul did it. But we have to understand that these, this call is of self-sacrifice is mutual. There are ways in which a man in a marriage is supposed to sacrifice of himself and give up things, and there's a way that a woman is supposed to sacrifice of herself and give up things. And for the woman, it's a, a sacrifice of submitting authority, and for the husband, it's a sacrifice of the self the desire to always look out for number one and say, no, there are people now that are more important than me, and if, if one of us has to live and die, guess what? I'm gone, so that she might flourish. That's the gist of what Paul is calling us to in this passage. There's a couple things that happen if this is lived out properly that, that are really, really cool. Number one, the husband has a really difficult calling within the context of his own sin. It's really hard to put someone's needs above your own. And we do it in little ways, right? The little ways are easy. I could, you know, do something nice for her for the day. But like in the day-to-day -day life, to truly start to think about her own flourishing over my own, that's a hard thing to do consistently with any kind of care and, and, and goodness, right? And any kind of track record. That's hard. If it's really, it's really hard to put someone else's needs entirely above your own. Number two, if the husband fulfills his role as he's called to, submission becomes easy. Right? She's essentially letting the husband put her above him. Right? As we said, who doesn't like that? You see, when this is carried out, it creates this beautiful harmony in the home. It allows both husbands and wives to live out their difficult but worthwhile and God-ordained roles. Right? But there's something even greater at play here. Paul's not just saying, look, you guys will both be better off if you submit and you self-sacrifice. There's something way bigger than this. And to figure out what it is, we have to look at this, this passage, the second half of Ephesians 5, in the context of really the whole book, but the first half of Ephesians 5. We're talking about Christian marriage within a context of a world that is in absolute chaos and turmoil. And we're talking about Christian marriage in the context of Ephesians, which is telling us all about how do we live the gospel out in everyday life, right? How do we take this newness, this unity that Paul is talking about and carry it out to the nations, to a world that doesn't understand it, to a world that's in utter chaos and dissension? What do we do with these things? And he talked about it last week with how we do it as a church, and he's going to talk about it, how we do it, when we talk about Christian marriage. Listen to the way Paul writes 
in the first half of this chapter. This is how Ephesians 5 begins. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is key. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the word to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So before he ever says, wives, submit to your husbands, the last verse right before that passage is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's the key. Just like today, Paul is speaking into a world that has perverse relationships on this earth and how they are to be and how we are to function. Love is not functioning as it should in Ephesus or really anywhere else during biblical times. Right? So Paul speaks into that. People are self-seeking and self-centered in Paul's day, just like today. And within that whole thing, Paul starts to scold this way of thinking and living. And we see a glimpse of this larger purpose in verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but wise. Here's the key. He becomes this, this section in this call to submit with one another out of reverence for Christ falls within a larger context of a reverence for Christ and his, his witness. The key truth to understand in this passage is that marriage is one of the greatest witnesses for the gospel that you and I and anyone who is or will become married or has been married or was married can have. We trust ourselves in marriage, and we submit to ourselves in marriage, and we lead one another well in, in marriage, and we sacrifice our own desires for ourselves in marriage. Your marriage serves primarily as a witness to the gospel, to the resurrected Christ. The primary reason your marriage exists is not for love or fulfillment or companionship, even though it is for those things. And God gives us the gift of marriage in order to have those things. They're a big part, but it's the secondary benefits. The primary purpose of your marriage 
is to be a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It does this in a couple ways. Number one, it witnesses the gospel amongst the two of you. Just in your own married context, right? In married relationships, you get to see a glimpse of the heavenly banquet when you begin to live out this submission for one another. What it does is it puts to death the self-centeredness of your heart. It puts to death, really, the, the, the two things that we most don't want to give up, our own autonomy and authority, right? When you say, I'm going to submit to another, well, what about my wants and desires and needs? No, 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 no. I, I'm going to submit and trust. I'm going to lay down my own desires and needs. And then it gets rid of the self-centeredness for a husband to have to say, no, 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 I'm not going to be about myself. I'm going to be about another more than me. Those are things that we as sinful humans most want to clutch and hold on to. And in marriage, the Lord gives us this institution, this beautiful place where we can practice laying down those things that ultimately have no place in God's kingdom. Right? That's why there is no marriage in heaven. You won't be married to your spouse when you both... If you've lost your spouse and you think, well, I'm going to be reunited with them in marriage, you'll, you'll see them again in eternal life. But marriage is not a part of the kingdom after this world. Why? Because it's not necessary. Because sin is gone. There's no self-centeredness to practice laying down. There's nothing there that has to die to oneself because Christ died for all things. And when we, through death, go through the same process as him and then come out and are resurrected as he was, we're without sin. There's nothing to put to death. Marriage doesn't need to be there anymore. We don't have to witness to anybody because every knee bows and every tongue confesses, right? It's a witness to the gospel amongst yourselves. You get to see the beauty of the gospel, of self-sacrificial love. You get to experience what it's like to be so undeserving of love and grace, but yet somehow get it from your spouse every day. Raise your hand if you woke up this morning in awe of the fact that your spouse even wants to live in the same house with you, right? Man, that's grace. That's a, that's a glimpse. That's a taste of the grace of Jesus that you get to live every day. Every morning that I wake up and Britta hasn't left me, it's a picture of God's grace. And that's kind of funny, but it's kind of not. It really is. I don't deserve to have her put up with me, and she doesn't deserve to have me put up with her because we're both terrible, sinful human people. But every morning we get up and we say, no, you know what? I don't, I'm going to love you anyway. Most of us probably love each other in, in married relationships. We love each other more despite things than because of things the longer you've been married. That's not a bad thing, right? If you think about, man, there's a whole list of things I'd change about my spouse. Congratulations. Welcome to the club. Jesus would say the same thing. Like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of things I would change about your spouse too. I'm working on her or him. And you're part of that. And she's working on you, by the way, because you have more things to change than she does. Right? That's what marriage is. It's this building up. Like you every day are supposed to make each other better and more in tune to God's will. What a beautiful thing. Right? This call to sacrificial love. That's why marriage today is so weird to look at when we say, well, I just, you know, I, I'm going to leave him. I just, I just don't love him anymore. As if love is somehow this thing that exists that flew away that you can't find. No, love is a verb. It's an active choice that you make. What do you mean you don't love him anymore? You choose to love him. Oh, but he doesn't 
make me feel the way he used to, or she doesn't make me feel the way she used to. Well, tough. Choose to love him. Choose to love her. That's the gospel on display. Because guess what? Every morning when you wake up, Jesus could look at you and he'd go, yeah, he, he doesn't make me feel the way he did yesterday. She doesn't make me feel the way she did yesterday. I really have no godly reason to love him or her. But guess what? Every morning you wake up and God says, I love you despite you. In marriage, we do the same thing to the best of our human ability. It's an act of choice. That's why we don't believe divorce ought to be an option. There are some special circumstances, so don't, don't tell me, you know, I, 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 there's some times where divorce becomes an option in terms of abuse or neglect or those kinds of things. And so I, I don't want to belittle that. But, but generally, we, we, we think of marriage as lifelong because it's supposed to be lived out. Jesus doesn't stop loving us no matter what. We don't love, stop loving our spouse no matter what. And so it witnesses the gospel amongst ourselves. Number two, it's designed to be a witness in that it sanctifies you, right? It, it's one of the primary means, if you're a married man or woman, your spouse is the primary sanctifier in your life. There is no one else out there who's making you better and more deeply in love with Jesus every day. There's no one out there who's more responsible for you becoming a more mature Christian every day. Right? No one. There's not an elder in this church, a friend that I have, pastors that I listen to. There's no one out there who makes me grow in Christ more than Britta. And vice versa. Right? Marriage sanctifies us. It shows us sin that we didn't even know we had, especially if kids come into the mix. Right? There's an anger in me that like, I did not know I had until I had a three-year-old. Like, I, I'm a peaceful guy. I do not have anger issues. Like, it's just not something. I'm not a very angry guy. But man, like, there are days where I am like, perfectly happy and Graham does one thing, and I am immediately like, I, I want to go through a wall. <laughs> Like, right? Like, there's, there's parts of the sinful nature of who I am that having a wife and kids starts to bring to light. And so it sanctifies us. And number three, your marriage serves as a witness to the whole world of how God-ordained relationships flourish. In a world that's confused about romance, that's confused about relationships, that's confused about the role of, of men, women, how marriage and how relationships and how all these things are supposed to work in a world that continuously devolves into chaos. Marriages, Christian strong marriages have the ability to be such a great witness. Right? People are like, well, man, my wife drives me nuts all the time. I'm thinking of you know, leaving her or whatever. Well, well my wife does that too. Well, you know, you're not thinking, no, well, why would I? I'm going to love her sacrificially. Well, what makes you do that? Well, our marriage is about more than just our feelings for one another. It's a commitment we made to the Lord to live out this, this kingdom here on earth together. Right? That's what drives us and keeps us going. Like your, your, your marriage is the number one way that you have of witnessing the gospel to the world outside of your own house. Number one. It's also, if you have kids, the number one way that your kids will experience the gospel. Right? The way you treat your wife or husband in the context of a household gives them a picture of how Christ and the church and, and, and God and his people ought to interact with one another. Right? It's an opportunity to see that lived out. Right? It's a beautiful thing. That's why love is an active verb, not a feeling in Christian marriage. There are days when Britta and I are not very lovable towards one another, but that doesn't mean we don't choose to to bring grace and mercy 
and newness into the marriage each and every day because that's what we promised God that we would do when we stood up there that day in 2017, right? So I might, might not feel a certain way on any given day or she might not feel a certain way, but guess what? It's about more than just ourselves. There's so much more to the depths of marriage than that. It's one of the number one things that we get into in premarital counseling of these couples that come in just in love with one another. And you go, look, have you thought about this? Have you thought about what you're signing up for? You're becoming missionaries to the world by saying, I do. Right? Think about that. My encouragement to you is that you engage with this passage and that you move beyond the noise of, of the culture today that says every submission has to be bad, every authority against us has to be a bad thing, everything's about us and who we are and what we want and, and the self-centeredness that just consumes the world and that we focus so much on these cultural buzzwords of things like submission. And instead, we look at a passage like this through the lens of Christ, who each and every day that you wake up says, you don't deserve it, you drive me crazy, you don't follow me, you don't obey my word, but man, today I'm going to love you relentlessly. Right? May our marriages do the same. May our relationships amongst ourselves do the same to proclaim the saving death of Christ to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. We're so thankful that you gave us our spouses for those of us who are married. We're thankful for our spouses for those of us who were married, who have lost them for the time that we've been given. Lord, for those of us who are not married, we pray that you would bring a person into our lives. And Lord, for those of us who are called to never be married, we pray that you would surround us with friendships that fulfill us that you would call us to a, a different purpose, as you called Paul to. The very person who wrote about marriage in Ephesians was never married himself. He was called to a life of singleness, and he was never lesser than because of that. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak powerfully into our marriages, for those of us who are married. We pray that you would speak powerfully into our relationships outside of marriage, for those of us who aren't, that we would see them for what they are as a witness to your resurrected glory. We pray that you would strengthen marriages. Lord, I pray that each and every marriage in this room would be strengthened this morning. That you would powerfully speak into the minds and hearts of husbands and wives sitting here or watching online. That they might con connect, gather, pray, grow, change, seek to follow you and how their marriage functions. We pray that you would use marriages in this room to put to death sin in our hearts and minds. We pray that you would use it to make us better Christians, stronger Christians, more mature in our faith. We pray that through our spouses we might come to know God more and more every day. We pray that you use marriages powerfully, not just in this church, to seek to save the lost, but in the world around us. We pray that our marriage might shine the gospel light into our workplaces, into couples that we're friends with who need your, your touch, your loving care, into our children, into our families, into our coworkers, that they might look to us and say, well, how is it that you're able to do this with a person who so often is sinful? And you say, well, it's the Lord. Let me tell you about him. Be with us. We love you and praise you. And all people said,